You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator. Voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, with your mind, and allow me to take you back and forth through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. Good morning. Two months ago, I had Carlene Stange on the show, who wrote The Spiritual Life of Animals, a country vet's exploration of the wisdom, compassion, and souls of animals. I enjoyed that interview very much, and there was more I wanted to talk with Carlene about. So up next, we're going to hear a follow-up interview conversation I had with her a couple of weeks ago. Hi, Carlene. Hi, Tonya. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. Great. So, do you know Linda Kahana by any chance? Do not. Okay. Just curious, because I'm going to be interviewing her tomorrow, and she's a horse person. Mm-hmm. And she wrote... A trainer? Yes, and also she does equine-assisted learning with people for leadership stuff, and... Uh-huh. She wrote a pretty amazing book, something that I'm not usually into leadership stuff because that makes me think of business, but uh, this book is really amazing because it applies to life in general, and I imagine you would have a lot of experience with the effects of working with horses and not just training horses, but 
being trained by horses. Yeah. And they, they definitely have a hierarchy in their herd. They have a leader, and that is very important to them. It doesn't matter if the leader is mean to them or whatever. That's their leader, and they, they want to be with that leader. Often it's a mare. You know, it's a mare is in charge of the food and, and the family situation, and then the stallion's in charge of the territory. Like, you are my mare. That's an extent. <laughs> yeah. Her latest book is titled The Five Roles of the Master Herder, and they're based on her experience with horses. And what you just said is like, you know, the primary initial distinctions. She talks about the dominant and the leader. And as you said, the mares are are usually the leaders, and there's usually a stallion who's the dominant, but they're completely separate roles. Mm-hmm which seems counterintuitive in some ways for me. I guess if you hang out with them enough, it just, you, it just is how it is. You know, it's a, it's a matriarchal society, really, and they have small bands with their offspring, and they, they can be pretty brutal, the mares, about what's going to happen and what isn't going to happen. They're the ones in charge of the food, for sure. We're going here, we're doing this, follow me, get away from that. You know, in my book I talk about that, the foal born with no eyes, and how the matriarch was looking at me at the end, and I thought, yeah, in the wild, she would have been the one that would have offed that foal. She would have probably gotten rid of it. Yeah, it's a hard role. And then the stallions, they fight each other over the mares. My mare. Mm-hmm. That's it. Pretty straightforward. Plus, she also talked about their horses, like you talked about Sporty, his what often seemed like irrational behavior, how for no apparent reason he would do things like chase May from her food and just be really nasty. And that's a characteristic of a young, dominant horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a bully. Yeah. He just was a bully. And, <laughs> you know, there's a hierarchy. And so the ones that are second beat up on the third, and the third beats up on the fourth. And... <laughs> Uh-huh. You know, it's a whole... Pecking order. Yeah. No pecking order. And if you bring a new animal in, you mess up the pecking order, and there's a whole drama. Yeah. They don't know what to do, and so they check each other out. You know, do I need to beat you up? Are you going to beat me up? You know, who's where's my place now? But you take that lead animal away, and they freak out. They're like, wait, don't go without me. So they like leadership. You know, and, and I think the relationship with the people is the same thing. You have to be the leader. And Cesar Milano always talks about that with dogs. You know, be the calm, confident leader. They look for that. And and the same thing with wolves. You know, they look for that dominant wolf to be in charge. And if they get beat up by him, that's okay. They still love him because he's the leader. So I don't know if this is a reflection of our society today or not, but, yeah, we're all animals. So... <laughs> So, yeah, you know, the humans come in and say, you stop that. I'm alpha. No fighting. Behave. And then they do. Mm -hmm. And there's a strange thing happening. Well, maybe it's not that strange to some people, but to me it seems kind of strange. We have a president now who acts like an immature dominant with Mm -hmm. no leadership skills at all. Mm -hmm. Or so it seems. Yet there's this mass of people that think he's great. Right. And there, a lot of them are educated, intelligent women, <laughs> you know, it, 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 and you say, why? And they, they have their reasons, 
and the women that support Roy Moore. I, I wonder. But, you know, there are women that use that. They use their bodies as a power tool. Mm-hmm. And so they're part of that issue. They, we have to own up to how do we dress, what are we doing. You know, it's confusing, I think, for men sometimes. You know, a woman will come along and manipulate them, and they're okay with it. <laughs> yes. I just heard some of that dynamic from my younger brother who just came out to spend a week here from Steamboat Springs. He's been in this battle with people, particularly an older lawyer-dominant character, and he just hired a young, beautiful woman who is now taking on this leadership role from him, and she's making it very, very difficult for these men to oppose her because they just don't know how to do it with a woman like her. Mm-hmm. But the thing yeah. with Trump is that, it's yeah, there's a lot of people in this country who want an immature dominant, and mm-hmm. I don't know whether that reflects some need for verification of their own immaturity or, or what it is. I mean, to well, me... Maybe he's the only person that can deal with the other immature dominants who are ruling other countries. <laughs> yeah, the bottom line is is essentially we have asked for it, we're demanding it, we voted for it, and we're putting up with it. Right. We want the cowboy, the James T. Kirk, to go out there blasting, being macho, and we look up to that for some reason. And, and the horses, as the horses do too. I remember a friend of mine had a, a mare a little Appaloosa, and my horse was an Appaloosa, and he needed a place to keep her. And I put her in my pasture with Pecos, and she beat him up right away, chased him off the food, and and you could see him looking at her like, wow, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, what's that? You know, like, in a way, you know, there was respect, in a way there was fear, but in a way there was, uh, like, I like her. You know, and I, I remember I had a cat one time, and I, I brought home a little kitten. My roommate had this male Siamese cat, and I brought home this kitten that appeared at the veterinary clinic without a person. And she came in and walked up to his food, and he came up behind her, and she turned around and smacked him upside the face about three times, and he stepped back, and you could see this awe of him, like, wow, I'm in love, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I I don't know if you ever... There was this classic, old, old classic cartoon, Crazy Cat and Ignat's Mouse, where this cat was always falling in love. was like having this oxytocin rush every time she saw this mouse. Uh And the mouse couldn't stand her and was always throwing bricks and hitting her upside the head. And, And she would see these, like, stars, heart stars... And like, oh, Ignat's mouse. (laughs) (laughs) And that's another fascinating thing about this book is she talks a lot about oxytocin, which Mm -hmm. I've always been fascinated by. Mm -hmm. Have you looked into that or or related to to that in your studies of animals and and particularly relationships and relationships between animals and people? You know, there's that story in, early on in the book where I talk about mares that sometimes reject their foals. Mm-hmm. And if I have to go out, you know, it's the first time mother usually, they don't know what it is. They're like, leave me alone, I'm in pain. Don't touch my udder, it hurts. And I have to go, had to go out and sedate the mare so the foal would nurse. And once the foal nurses, oxytocin is released. 
it, there's a hormonal reaction from nursing. The same thing happens with humans, exactly, which is, you know, how mothers that reject their babies bond once they nurse, they get the oxytocin, and that makes them feel all mothery and loving. And so, you know, this is how I'm saying, you know, how can animals not feel love? How can anybody say that? We have the same hormones and the same emotional responses. I, 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 there was something about humans and animals having an oxytocin response to each other, but I don't recall what it is right now. But, you know, it is emotions, and there's something about riding a horse that just does it to you. You know, I mean, if you're a little kid, a lot of kids are afraid of horses, but you put them on a horse, and this cheese, this amount of energy under you that moves with you and responds to the feelings that you put off, it's this magical reaction, you know. So there's something really exciting and nurturing about it. You know, that's why they, they use it for psychotherapy, but also kids with cerebral palsy or people with disabilities. You know, the neurologic system actually imprints. I had a client who had a horse. She had cerebral palsy and could not walk, but she learned to walk by riding this horse. And so she told me, anything this horse ever needs Anytime you take care of it, he taught me to walk just by sitting on him. So, yeah, there's a magical connection that happens. And that's another thing that I really wanted to talk about, but I'm really fascinated. Do you have any sense of how that worked neurologically for that to, to be able to, to learn to walk just by sitting and experiencing that, that chi, that, that power? Because it also relates to... You do acupuncture, which is working on stimulating, increasing, diminishing, balancing energy mm-hmm. in the body. And I'm really curious if you have any insight into how that, that might have worked. I haven't given it a lot of thought, but I think, you know, the energy is not, or the spirit, is not contained in the physical body. And so we share this spirit. That's what we feel. Remember in, um, what's the movie that, uh, Avatar, right, where they, they get on the, the beast and then their braids connect with their braids and then they have this boom, neurologic connection and they're one with the animal. I think that happens. You don't have to connect your braids. I think you just, even just touching mm-hmm. a, an animal like that, but sitting on them, their energy and the way they, they move patterns your body and your body learns something that it didn't know. Sharing the energetic spirit of the beast. I, I don't know that I have the scientific terminology to describe how it works, but there are scientific studies on it, I believe. So, yeah, thank God for horses. Yeah, it's fascinating how, like with human, human to human, we have a fair amount of direct visceral experience with each other, but we get caught up in our thoughts and our head trips with each other but with horses that doesn't happen that whole avenue is one-sided and there is that magic of of literally having our experience corralled or channeled into that direct visceral experience and mm-hmm. Linda kind of quoted the work of a woman named Meg Daly Olmert and she talks a lot about oxytocin and that just in the way that humans and horses hang out together, like when a person's grooming a horse, that mm. that 
just that bonding alone gets mm-hmm. the oxytocin flowing. So it's like they were expanding the range of of experience of oxytocin. Mm-hmm. And one of the most fascinating things was at the end, the last chapter, where a mule deer came out of the wilderness to connect with a human couple, which I think was unheard of. And then she brought her young and it created a whole new relationship. And that's a really difficult thing because herd animals, as you well know, are very prone to the fight or flight instinct when they come into contact or or come into proximity with any potential dangerous predator, Mm -hmm. of which humans obviously are primary ones. Um, But remember, animals sense energy. Yes. So they can tell, are you a predator? Not always, you know, and, and we, we act like predators sometimes when we don't intend to be. But they can totally sense whether you're, you know, coming to get them, mm-hmm. stalking them, or you're calm. You know, I was walking through a field one time with my husband, and all of a sudden there was this enormous bull. <laughs> Uh-oh. And he was pretty close, and he was staring at us, and it's like, look down. And just keep walking. <laughs> you know, don't just be calm. You know, don't be threatening. Llamas, if you look a llama in the eye, they take it as a threat, and they they'll raise their their head up and put their ears back and get a wad up to spit at you. You know, and if you look them in the eye, you're going to get it. So you got to look down. So there's body language that they read, as well as just sensing your tension or your anger or your aggression or your calm. You know, these great horse trainers, they just have a calmness about them. They have a way of communicating with horses that the horses understand. Just like the llamas, you know, if I want to get into it with a llama, which I have in the past, like sometimes, this is kind of funny, llamas, they have little um, waxy nip things on the ends of their nipples that have to be cleaned off before their baby, which is called a crea, can nurse. And I've been called out to do this on a number of occasions where people can't restrain the llama. And I remember this one case where this llama, they couldn't catch her, and she was running, and this Kriya was following her, and and it's really important for them to get that first milk. So she ran into the barn, and I came onto the threshold of the door, and she raised her head and gave a wad, and I looked at her, and I spit at her, and I hit her in the face with my spit. (laughs) And she just rose and went, ah, was her sound. And I was able to walk up to her, put a halter on her, tie her up, and clean off the nipples without her fussing, kicking, anything. It was, I am dominant, stand still. And it works great with llamas, does not work with alpacas. But if you, if you can speak their language, you can get along. So, you know, it takes practice and hanging out with them to get to know. I've, I've gotten stood on seriously many times, so I learned. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's really interesting because there's a similar kind of a thing that happens in martial arts. And mm-hmm. since you have a black belt in some form of martial arts, there's a sense of inner confidence and power that comes with the experience of of doing the practice with other people. Mm-hmm. And... Once you've reached a certain level or critical mass of that experience, you have a sense of inner confidence that you can then project out mm. 
And to me, that seems very related to the experience of like when you're in the field with the bull, you have a certain amount of knowledge of what's best, most appropriate to do in that situation to maintain harmony and peace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really wanted to talk with you about as well in this conversation was some of those dynamics, because as you say, animals can read our intentions, they can sense our feelings and pick up our intentions through, I guess, through their emotional body, their feeling body, since they don't intellectualize these things. Yeah, you know, with horses, you know, going out meeting a new horse every day, they'll pick on someone who's afraid. They'll push you around. And so each new horse that I came up to, say I had to pick up the foot, they'd try to step on my foot, right? But all you have to do is say, quit. And they go, okay. You know, they go, all right. You know what you're doing. And you're confident, like you said. And I think it happens with people, too. If, you know, say a biker gang came up, and you were all acted afraid or threatened or angry, you know, they would reflect that back at you, and escalating emotions could result in trouble. You know, where if you just say, hey, what's going on? You know, I mean, if you just chill and accept them, don't judge them, you may be better off, you know, with people, too. You know, just not judging them but accepting them who they are face-to-face in an open, kind way you're more likely to get that back. And so, you know, in martial arts, yes, you'd have techniques that are going to help you if you need to defend yourself, and so you have more confidence. And I think another thing for me was learning to not think, but to trust that I would be okay. And people have argued with me about this no-thinking thing, but I was taught that you fight with no mind, because you can't have any emotions, they just get in the way, and you can't think. There's no time. So you let go of fear, you let go of anger, you just let go and trust. And that is when something beautiful really happens. And I was reading the Tao of Jeet Kune Do the other night, uh, and Bruce Lee says the same thing. You know, it's really Taoism, this no thinking part. And he has this lovely poem in here about um, a Taoist priest wrote, And he talks about the moon in the stream, you know, like the eye sees it, but no hand can take a hold of it. There's something in us that is spirit that you can't touch. You know, he says, into a soul absolutely free from thoughts and emotion, even the tiger finds no room to insert its fierce claw. So when you're empty, you know, and and like the I Ching talks about evil, when you label evil, and fight against it, it has something to fight back against. But if you don't label it and don't put up a fight against it, it destroys itself. It disintegrates on its own accord. So being empty is the best way to fight. Being empty is the best way to deal with aggression. You know, and it's hard. You know, I was a little woman, and and here are these big, fast, young men and I'm sparring with them. And so I'd have to walk up and bow. <laughs> Teacher would say, Yame, Yazume, off you go. And I don't have time to figure out what I'm going to do. So it's absolutely a no-mind emptiness experience. And it's like moving Zen. It's, it's very freeing, and you know, I don't remember it, and it's blissful, really. 
did it take a while for you to get to that point? Oh, yeah. Okay. I remember the first time I did it, I was sparring with a woman who was a black belt. And I thought, I'm, I did it. You know, I'm doing it. Like, I, I realized I was in no mind, and she popped me in the face. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> as soon as I thought. Yep. As soon as I thought, boom. It's like, oh, don't think. And horses have a way of, of teaching us in almost the exact same way, don't they? Yeah. Uh, they really, you know, if, again, you know, every day going out to meet a new horse, some are afraid, some are mean, some are gentle. There's all different personalities. And you got to go out there and stick a thermometer in their butt and look in their mouth. And, you know, they don't want any of this. <laughs> so somehow I have to convince them. I usually just show them the thermometer and say, "This is the alien rectal probe. It only hurts your feelings. You know, it only hurts your uh, pride. Only hurts your pride." And they go, "Oh, it's just a thermometer." And I put it in. If I try to do it without showing it to them, they're like, "What are you doing back there?" You know. But if I go, "Hey, only the alien rectal probe. Don't worry." They go, oh, "Okay." You know. And then I have an acupoint um, that I, I learned right above the front teeth that when you press on it, it releases endorphins. They get high on it. And so I press on that and they start licking and then I can, you know, examine them. And and just touching them. I have to, I had to, I had, when Pecos was young, all he knew how to do was rear when I bought him for $100. <laughs> I bought this horse for $100. All he knew how to do was rear. Right? And I was terrified of him. I mean, I had to sit in my room and you know, gear up to go out and see him. I had to fake being not afraid, you know, because if he knew I was afraid, I would be in trouble. So I had to fake it, you know, go out there and be the top, you know, the dominant animal, but not hurt him and scare him and establish a bond with him. And it's very educational for anybody to do that with a horse because, you know, they'll show you, they'll reflect right away what's working and what is not. And that's why they use them in psychotherapy. They're such perfect mirrors. They're so honest, and really, they're quite kind. I mean, why would an animal that size let us ride them? They like us, and I think they look at us like dogs. You know, we're companions. They have fun with us. You know, when I open my horse trailer up and go in to get the horses, sometimes they go in there without their halters on. I have to go in there and put a halter on them (laughs) because they want to go. They like to go. They love people. And another thing that Linda Kahanov talks about is is this paradoxical thing about how humans, you know, think we're the ones who are reaching out to them and we're the ones who are training them and we're the ones who are using them. But she says, you know, it may not be that way at all. They may be reaching out to us and using us and training us as much as we think we're doing to them. And there's a lot of that in nature, like plants have this way of seducing humans into doing things that benefit their survival. And I I just wonder, because I'm not a horse person, I don't really know, I don't have those kind of experiences and I don't know much about horses, but I'm really curious to hear what people like you have to think about these things. Well, it's all one, one mirror. Here, I was reading Rudolf Steiner the other night. Do you know who Rudolf Steiner is? Yes. Right, okay, he said, here it becomes evident that all life is a unity, that the life in man is related to the life of all his fellow creatures. And, you know, the other day I was cleaning a cabbage from our garden, and I was peeling away the dead leaves, and there was a slug in behind one leaf. And 
he took one look at me or, you know, sensed me and backed up. And he had, you know, it's like he reacted to me to get away. Because I tried to get him out. And he's like, oh, no, I don't want to come out. And so I, I went outside and shook him until he fell out of the cabbage. And I thought, oh, I hope he's, I hope he's happy there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've dumped a lot of slugs there, so I, I hope he finds the sluggess of his dreams in that little pile of dirt. But, you know, it's all a reflection. You know, when you look at the society as a whole, I like to do this in the airport. Sit in the airport and go, we are all one. And look at all the different kinds of people that go by. But it's true, you know, Gershon Winkler talked about that. I I mentioned him in my book. He's a, a rabbi that lived with the Apache for many years. And he says, you know, all the creatures are in us. They helped God create us, and they are all the creatures, minerals, everything that was first created is part of us. So everything we see is a reflection of who we are. So the next animal that comes by is a reflection, the next hawk that flies by. You know, if we're afraid, we get animals that respond to us out of fear. So we have to calm ourselves. I remember when I worked at Animus Animal Hospital, if one dog tried to bite me, the next three would because I would be afraid, and they would sense that energy and, you know, sense, oh, oh, something scary is going to happen. So I had to always, you know, go in the back and, you know, talk to myself about, look, here, let go of that. And veterinarians have to master that. They're constantly dealing with aggressive animals, frightened animals, animals with weapons, cats and such, horses. Horse can pop you in the forehead and you're dead. And they can hit the people that are holding the animals. You got liability here too. You have to be very in tune with that animal. And just touching it is, is such a huge thing. Just it's just like a dog or a cat or anything. You touch it and they react. You know, if you're you can say, Hey, it's okay. I'm not gonna hurt you. You know, I, I talked because that helped me calm myself. You know, I remember this old rancher guy. He's he's one of those old guys that didn't move his lips when he talked, you know, he said, it's all that talk and do any good. <laughs> <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Carlene Stangy, author of The Spiritual Life of Animals, a country vet's exploration into the wisdom, compassion, and soul of animals. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. all that talk and do any good. I said it helps me. It helped me calm myself to say, you're okay. We're all right. You're all right. You know, and pet them, and then they, they calm down. I calm down. So you are able to actually do that with a dog that wants to bite you, and you're face-to-face? Often. Really? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is fear. Most animals aren't generally just aggressive. And then, you know, you can throw in some animal communication stuff there too but you know there there's the occasional animal that i have not been able to reach but it's funny though because like i had this one dog she was a german shepherd super aggressive she would come in and i could give her a cookie and pet her but the second i sat down and looked at her like a veterinarian to analyze her she'd growl give me this big ugly i'm gonna kill you growl (laughs) 
<laughs> which was quite intimidating, and she knew it. These dogs know this stuff. They're so smart. They manipulate us, too. I remember being in vet school, and this veterinary dentist from Denver came in and told a story about a German Shepherd police dog that was, you know, quite intimidating, and he, he broke his canine tooth. And so this dentist had to fix it, and he put a gold cap on this tooth, and that shepherd would show that cap specifically whenever he was out on the job. He'd growl and show that tooth. So, you know, they know what's going on. And if you if you call their bluff, you know, if you're a little intuitive about it, you can say, oh, that's okay. And they go, okay. So when you have the confidence to be present with an animal and, and the knowledge that it, that they're really just experiencing fear as well, it changes the way you approach them. Mm-hmm. And it gives you more options. Yeah, more aggression doesn't work. I remember in vet school there was a cat in a cage in ICU, and it was, you know, hissing and all hunched back with claws drawn, you know, and it was like nobody wanted to reach in there. We were all afraid. And the teacher called this intern and told her to get it. And she just walked up to it very calmly, reached in, and picked it out without any trouble. So it was, you know, her energy, her calm, her confidence. Our fear didn't work. Mm -hmm. I guess this is part of martial arts training and also horse training people to regulate our emotions. Yeah, there's a uh, Aikido story. I don't know if I told you this one. I don't think so. I don't um, think so. Yeah. There was a, a Aikido student American. He went over to Okinawa to train, and he was on a subway one evening. He was a brown belt, and this drunk man came on the subway, and he, he found a pipe on the floor, and he picked it up, and he was swinging it around, and this Aikido brown belt thought, okay, I'm going to have to stop this guy. And just as he was about to connect with this man, an old guy in the back said, hey, to the drunk guy, what have you been drinking? And the drunk guy says, sake. And the old man says, ah, the missus and I love to drink sake in the evening and watch the persimmon blossoms. I bet you have a lovely wife. And the drunk guy broke down crying. His wife had left him. He lost his job. And he ended up in a crumple under the old man's arm telling him the whole sob story. And the brown belt was so ashamed because he knew that old man was the black belt. You know, there's three ways of dealing with things. Confronting it, avoiding it, and taking it in. And that black belt old man took it in and helped that guy. That's such an amazing story. And the interesting thing is that I interviewed Michael Gelb the week after I interviewed you, and he told that exact story in oh. his book. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> and he told a number of really fascinating Aikido stories because he he's a fourth-degree black belt in Aikido, and he wrote a book called The Art of Connection. And all these things are so connected. They're so interrelated, all these things that we're talking about mm -hmm. with animals, with people. Mm -hmm. And I'm just totally fascinated by this because, you know, I, I don't have martial arts training. I don't have horse training. And I have just been fumbling my way through life and learning how to interact with many different kinds of people. And I consider myself to be good at 
at relating to all kinds of people, but I still encounter people that that throw me for a loop that I don't know how to deal with. So I'm just so fascinated with all of this because I have so much to learn. And there's just this, you know, the, the endorphins or dopamine hits that we get when we learn something, the reward thing but i just love that i'm i'm kind of a junkie for that kind of stuff so i just mm-hmm. love love learning mm-hmm. for that reason you know i think it goes back to the fact that we're all one again and so you know the butterfly effect each little ripple we put out we get back and everything we see is a reflection of some part of ourselves you know, Bruce Lee says it here, the oneness of all life is a truth that can only be fully realized when the false notions of a separate self are, you know, released. We have to, we're not separate. We're all one. And so, you know, there's Lama Sultramaliani wrote the book, Feeding Your Demons. And psychologists talk about how you have to embrace your shadow side. So I, I think when I see someone who's being a complete yeah, yeah, you know, you know, I get over my initial wanting to smack them. I, <laughs> I go, okay, what part of me are they reflecting? And what is that really? And how can I transform that in myself to, you know, help me, but also the whole mm-hmm. improve? Right. Like the old man on the train who who had enough presence of mind and personal experience or or sense of that that greater sense of oneness that he was able to embrace this person who most people would just see as a complete asshole for yeah. want of another term look at look at captain kirk and jean-luc picard so i named my husband jean-luc after jean-luc picard in my book because i love jean-luc picard but so kirk was a cowboy he was always out there ready to fight and, you know and jean-luc asked questions if someone was aggressive towards him, he'd say, you know what, oh, I understand why you're acting like this now. He'd ask questions to try to understand the person's perspective. You know, because just like the, the drunk guy on the subway, it's like nobody understood why he was being such an asshole. But he was just falling apart inside. He, didn't, he couldn't handle the shame. Shame and guilt are so painful you know, David Hawkins wrote Transcending the Levels of Consciousness, The Stairway to Enlightenment. He talks about how shame and guilt are the lowest levels of consciousness, and they are so painful that the result is vindictive hate. You cannot tolerate the pain inside yourself, so you act out in an ugly way. And so if we can help people get over shame and guilt, we're helping everybody, you know? Yeah, it's so fascinating. It goes back to that old thing that all we need is love, that old Beatles song. Mm-hmm. And that old man, that's what he did, was he he received that person's drunken, chaotic behavior with love. With compassion and and no fear. Mm-hmm. No anger, just and no judgment. Yeah. It's super hard. That's, you know, sort of what all the spiritual teachings say at their highest level. I was, I was in an interview with someone the other day, and they're like, I don't like religion. Like, yeah, but it's not religion that we're talking about here. We're talking about the highest level of spiritual teachings across the globe. 
and they all are telling us these same things we've been talking about. And we just, it's very hard to master them. We get so wound up in ourself, our own little ego things, and we think we have to just feed our own protection and our own money and our own pride, and yet that is counterproductive. Really trying to help everyone helps you. And that's what comes back. Louise Hay said, you know, try to help someone. You can't stop the money from coming in. (laughs) Well, there's an interesting thing that's happened in my life fairly recently. Since I haven't had a cat for a couple of years, a mouse moved into my house. Oh. And I don't see the mouse. But my first response was, "Uh uh-oh, there's a mouse that's eating my food. Well, he, he climbed up on my dinner table, and I was really oh, s- surprised that he was able to do that, climb up a very smooth wooden leg to get up there, and he found an avocado, and he, oh. he ate part of it. And I'm thinking, my first res- response was, oh, I've got to get the traps out and do that. But then I stopped, and I thought, well, you know what? I've got plenty of food, and I've got plenty of space here. I don't have to kill this creature. I don't have to get rid of it. I don't have to separate myself from I there's plenty of space. So I've I've gone to leaving bits of food <laughs> underneath the dining room table and and I've made a like a nonverbal agreement with it, one sided, you know, saying, well if you you know if you don't poop all over the place, you don't disrespect the space, you're welcome to live here. And I'll even leave you food and I won't harm you. But you have a cat. I don't. But I'm actually going to look at a kitten after this interview. So I'm torn inside. I'm feeling very ambivalent about this. Well, you know, the veterinarian in me and the public health safety veterinarian in me is is flying up here because when you see one mouse, there's a hundred. Well, that's, yeah, I'm concerned about that. But I also, part of my, my unspoken agreement, I said, don't invite in, you know, a lot of other mice. Don't reproduce. <laughs> right. If you disrespect the space, you're out mercilessly. Mm-hmm. Like what you said with sport. You said you put your finger up to, yep. to his face and you said, if you hurt me, you're dead. And that's right. essentially what I'd said to the mouse. Right. I said, you, you mess with the space. You disrespect <laughs> the space and, and what I'm offering you, you're gone. You're dead. Right. So Right. Here's about it, you know, and this reflects my, my struggle with the prairie dogs in every chapter of my book. You know, uh, they're rodents. They're destructive. They multiply like crazy. They spread the plague. You know, there's all these reasons for us to be annoyed and afraid of them and go out and kill them. But, you know, I don't want to kill them. They're cute. You know, they have a right to life. But they're destroying my field. My cat brought one in the house. Now, you know, the fleas transmit plague. Mm. You know, with mice, it's hantavirus around here. It kills people, right? So I'm not, not, not cool with this. And so, you know, I'm looking out the window, thinking about the Bhagavad Gita and how Krishna tells Arjuna to kill. Mm -hmm. Arjuna is going to war. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to kill his neighbors. And Krishna says, it's your duty. Mm -hmm. You have to do it. Do it without remorse or anger. So you have equanimity and you don't accumulate karma. You have to do your duty. And as a veterinarian, 
I have to do my duty, and I'm, I'm contemplating what this means. And I see a large bird in the sky, and I'm watching it, and I realize it's a bald eagle coming my way. It tucks and dives down on this prairie dog colony and gets a prairie dog in the second. Right. While I'm thinking this thought, it was like, wow, you know, so the eagle represents the divine spirit, the great spirit. And so it's like, you know, I don't have to go out there and physically kill these prairie dogs. It has a billion predators. If I just am one with the spirit, it balance will be okay. It's working on me, which is a huge challenge, a full-time job, to try to, to work this out. So I, I applaud your little experiment here. I'll be eager to see how it goes. Yeah, I think our relationships with animals are amazing and wonderful, and... I don't think I mentioned this, but I learned to purr from my cat. Uh-huh. I had this wonderful little kitty. She was like six and a half pounds, a little long-haired ginger tabby. And I would look at her from across the room, and I would give her a cat kiss, you know, a slow blink. Uh-huh. And she would start purring. And I could hear her purring from across the room. And I tried purring myself. And I figured out how to do it. And when I do it... I actually get a rush. What I'm thinking must be like an oxytocin rush because, you know, when a cat starts purring, you can feel that they're going into a kind of an altered state, a very loving, warm state. Well, purr, the cat purr is around 80 hertz, which is the frequency that bone heals. And there's an adage in veterinary medicine that you put two cat bones in the same room, they'll heal. In other words, you know, if you have a dog with a fracture, you got to fix it. But cats, just leave them alone. They heal. It's quite amazing, really. Elk, wild animals, too. I've seen things I thought would never heal just heal on these wild animals and in cats. And so I frequently encourage cats to purr when they're not well uh, because I believe it is like a mantra. So mantras are like that. The sounds... The sacred sounds have a vibration that's beneficial for various things. And the cat purr is definitely a healing sound. And there are spiritual traditions that all they do is chanting of mantra, and they say that that's enough. You don't have to do anything else. Right. Yeah, and that's what hymns are supposed to be, too. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about Handel when he wrote The Messiah. It wasn't a thinking thing. He didn't pound it out with his intellect. He said the heavens opened up and it flowed through him. <laughs> so, you know, his connection with spirit mm-hmm. that brought us that beautiful music. Mm-hmm. And music like that has a profound effect on us. Yeah, I mean, I can't listen to the Messiah without crying. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother died. She was 94. And I talk about, in my book, too, how she always sang the Lord's Prayer at church many, many times. I've heard her sing the Lord's Prayer, and it's got this high C note, you know, and it sends vibrations through your body. It kind of brings tears to your eyes. It's a very powerful song. And at her funeral, someone sang it, and that was that was hard to choke back the tears at that moment. You know, it's just some music does that to you. So sound is very powerful. And I think... 
it's very healing. When we have that response inside, it's very healing, I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, they have, actually have mantras for different parts of your body and for different things. I was reading Rudolf Steiner again, and he, he talks about how if you separate, his whole thing is separating thinking from feeling, from willing. And you can feel or you can feel hate, for example, coming at you. And with your spiritual will, you can reflect it away. You can just, poof, there it goes. <laughs> mm-hmm. It goes away. You can put an orb of light and love around you that nothing can penetrate and just reflects off as love. Mm-hmm. I've done a fair amount of meditation practice, including chi generation work, which helps build that kind of presence and the power to work with energy like that. Many, many years ago, I, I was studying Taoist healing. It was part of the Shaolin Kung Fu tradition. I chose not to do the martial arts part of it. I'm not sure about you know past life experience, but I felt like I had already done that, and I yeah. didn't need to do that. I didn't want that to be part of my life. So I was um, doing the healing work and learning mm-hmm. to do that, but we did both the, the people doing the martial arts and the people doing the healing work did the same energy generation exercises. Mm-hmm. Martial arts is spiritual training. Yes. And, and you're just training your body and controlling your mind, which yes. is huge and hard, but you can control your mind and send energy to particular parts of your body. And, you know, these things sound easy until you, you know, are tired or sick or, you know, have some major trauma, and then it's really challenging, but those are the times when you get to go a little deeper with your training and learn more, and I've become grateful for them, even though they're really, you hate them. <laughs> I don't like pain, right? right? I don't right. like pain, but it's right. such a powerful teacher. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. You know, I recently had a bout of sciatica, and it was seriously painful. I couldn't sit, you know, at all, and, you know, tried many different therapies, and I'm currently doing Bowen which is quite uh, interesting and very minor touch working on the neurologic system, and I'm feeling profound changes. And there's a, a local guy who's Craig Holloway. I think Holiday is his name, and he's an enlightened person. And he talks about how, how much pain he had in his central nervous system for a long time and how, you know, it's part of the Kundalini teaching and, and so on. I mean, I think all of our... All of our ailments are lessons for us. It's a constant battle of learning through suffering as to how to grow, how to change, how to become a better person. That's what we're here for. You know, the Taoists say the spirit comes into the body so that the body can transform, so that the being can transform the heavy lead of suffering into the gold of wisdom and compassion. And so, you know, all the great teachers have had some major suffering, you know, so that's how we learn. And mastering how we respond to things, Mm -hmm. including those inner experiences of pain and inner suffering. Right, because they're not just physical, they're not just emotional, they're they're so multifactorial. Sorting it all out can be quite educational. And I look at the animals that come to me now, I had an interesting case yesterday, a, a yellow lab and she has multiple joints that hurt, and she's depressed, 
and no one can exactly figure out what the cause is, and pain medication doesn't seem to help. And, you know, I was trying to figure it out, and all I could do was what Ari Thorison had taught me, because it's so different. It's, it's Rudolf Steiner-type stuff. And, and Ari, my teacher, who's a Norwegian veterinarian, he's a salty old clairvoyant Viking who can see what's wrong, but he teaches this particular pulse technique where you determine what the weakest point of energy is, and you put one needle around a toe for that point. And this dog's pulses were all over the place. I mean, there were every organ seemed to be affected in some way. And I, I was at baffled, like, how do I even approach this? So I thought, okay, what would Ari do? Uh, the weakest pulse, I determined, was the lung pulse. And she did have also a cough at night. And so a gag, not really a cough, but a gag. And so I, I listened to the heart. Everything seemed fine. I couldn't find any really Western reason, and no other veterinarian has been able to make a diagnosis of what is ailing this poor dog. I put this one needle in the lung point on her thumb, and all the pulses went normal. Wow. Then I added what Ari calls the Christ point. Now, this is uh, Rudolf Steiner. He carved this 24-foot wooden carving of Christ healing, where there's two... According to Rudolf Steiner, there's two negative energies in the body, the Luciferic and the Aramonic. And when we're really ailing, they come together, and Christ healed by going between them and blowing them out in different directions. And so Ari can see this, and he puts this Christ point in where that is, and so I can't see it, but he teaches how to find it, and so I also added the Christ point on this dog. And the woman said, that point right there is a point when I touch this dog, I sense something wrong, she moans whenever I touch that place on her back. And so it's like, okay, there's also a big depression here, so I put that needle in, and we'll see how it goes. I had another case with a cat recently. This cat had aortic thrombosis. That's a blood clot in the aorta where it bifurcates into the femoral arteries and goes down to the hind limbs, and it causes severe pain and paralysis in these cats. Well, this cat was never really in pain, but it was completely paralyzed. The woman brought it to me, and I used regular acupuncture and herbs, and the cat walked, which is really quite amazing. And it went several months, and then it happened again. And she would always go to the regular vet, and they'd give her aspirin to break up the clot, and then she'd come to me, and I'd get the cat walking again. And this happened three times, which is unusual. And then the fourth time, the cat blew a clot into its lungs and could not breathe. It was gasping for air, turning purple, you know, could also paralyze in the hind limb, took it to the regular vet. They gave it aspirin, put it in an oxygen cage. She calls me. I'm like, okay, I'll try. I go in there, and, you know, I don't have any time because you can't open the oxygen cage. The cat can't breathe. So I determined the Christ point, put the Christ point in, shut the cage, called her and said, you know, this isn't looking good. You know, it probably isn't going to make it. Three days later, she brings me the cat. It's walking and breathing fine. So, you know, <laughs> But then, a month later, the cat did again and died on his own. But, you know, we were talking about it at the, at the Animus Animal House. was like, we have no idea what really was going on with this cat. But it was quite an interesting thing for me. And the woman prayed. She believes her prayer saved the cat. So I'm, I'm going with that, too. They all helped. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm so glad you brought up Ari Torreson and those points that you're talking about. Does he work with people as well as animals? Yes. yes, he treats people. In Norway, it's legal for anyone to treat people. So he treats people. He treats people wherever he goes. He's, he's a quite an interesting character. He looks a bit like Gandalf. Mm-hmm. And he has no empathy. That's, you know, some of these spiritual people are, are quite unempathetic. You know, he, you just do it. Like in Banff, when I first met him, he said, this is the sickest bunch of veterinarians I've ever worked with. You women, quit being empathetic. You're going to get sick from these people. Just do it. <laughs> Easy for him to say. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, but he's been clairvoyant his whole life. And I, I asked him, I said, that must have been really hard for you. Hmm. He said, yeah, as a child, it was just terrifying. And, and really, I, 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 was, I wanted to kill myself if I didn't find some sort of person to talk about spirituality, I was going to kill myself. And then he met a very esoteric teacher, and he learned about Rudolf Steiner, and he studied that, and that, that helped him. But he tells the most amazing stories about the things he sees, and, and I can understand. I try to read Rudolf Steiner, and it's so out there for me to understand, but Ari actually sees another dimension of beings and <laughs> interacts with them. You know, so, you know, for, I, I know other clairvoyant people who say, yeah, I, over there at that table, there's a, that child has an imaginary friend, and, and that man has black clouds in his aura, and, you know, they see all these things. And if you're a child, you know, how would you deal with that? Oh, at my mother's funeral, my grandniece, my mother's great-granddaughter, was standing on her aunt's lap, and she looked into the crowd, and she said, hi, Gogo. Gogo was my mother's nickname her grandkids gave her. And so she, she was there. Her niece, her great-granddaughter, saw her. Hi, Gogo. You know, these kids and animals see spirit realm more readily than we do. It's just normal for them. They have these imaginary friends. They're imaginary for us. A woman came in my office one day. She'd been here a number of times, and she said, You know, when I first met you, I didn't know what you did. I didn't know if you did voodoo or what. And I was a little afraid to come, but now that I know you, I can tell you I've always seen dead people my whole life. I remember as a child saying, Mommy, look at those Indians on the other side of the river. What are they doing? You know, and she can see people remotely as well, like if she's talking to someone on the phone. She looked like a normal housewife. I mean, there's a lot of people like this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have to start realizing that there's more than just our physical existence here and we need to interact with it in a intelligent way Mm -hmm. or at least be humble enough to acknowledge that there's much more to this this whole universe than we perceive through our eyes and ears and as i watched ari heal animal you know there was up in banff there was a a lame mare she was four-year-old black and white paint beautiful little horse she was very lame and had been since these people owned her, and they'd had a number of veterinarians, chiropractors, acupuncturists, work on this horse with no help. She hiked her hind hip and dragged her left hind toe. That's how lame she was. And there's this little girl sitting on her back, and Ari made the diagnosis. He used a laser to treat one point in the heel bulb and, and one point up by the sacrum, and then he pulled on the tail for a couple minutes, and then we went off and worked on other horses. And about 20 minutes later, I turned around and saw this little girl trotting around on this horse, and she's nodding her head and smiling, saying, she's better. And I looked, and I was like, God, this horse was a lot better. And the horse went so 
sound and stayed sound, according to another veterinarian who examined it a month later. And now, who doesn't want to do that? I do. You know, I mm-hmm. okay, I want to learn from you what you do. You know, nothing gives a veterinarian more joy than seeing an animal heal. And it's a mysterious process. Like when I was learning the energy, the Chinese energy healing, it was very mysterious. I mean, we were we were diagnosing through the fingers and the toes and sending energy in or, or drawing energy out, you know, along the meridians of the major organs and sensing these very subtle qualities of energy mm. for diagnosis. And... It's very subtle, and I mm. didn't understand it intellectually. I was about 20 years old at the time, but I was getting a direct visceral experience of this, and I was getting all my readings confirmed by the teacher, and it was fascinating. It's not an intellectual process. No, and there's something really going on there. Real uh-huh. healing, things happen. I mean... If a person is receptive and, and wants to heal, healing happens. If, if they right. don't want to heal, there's nothing anybody can do. Right. But, but if you're interacting with them in a way that's in harmony with their will, with their intentions right. or their issues, then things happen. And it's not about us. It's really much more about them. And, and like they say, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. I think the same thing happens with healing. If somebody wants healing, a healer or some facilitator for the process will will appear for them. I'm glad you brought that up. It's such a key thing. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Carlene Stange, author of The Spiritual Life of Animals, a country vet's exploration into the wisdom, compassion, and souls of animals. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. It's such a key thing. And for healers, you know, veterinarians in particular, when our patients don't improve, you know, we take that to heart as it's our fault. And, you know, that's one of the things I learned early on in writing this book and doing research. I learned from a clairvoyant. She said, you know, there's a lot more going on than just what you do. You know, maybe the animal had other plans. Maybe the people in the animal are trying to learn something together. There's a lot more going on. And I read that recently, just what you said, that, you know, when the person's in the right vibration to heal and when the right healer comes, boom, it can be a miracle. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like this magical confluence of right things, right energy. It made me think of, of Ari's work, where he's mm-hmm. able to read the sweet spot in between things. Like in in Taoism, there was that thing from Lao Tzu. He talks about how, well, it might have been Chuang Tzu, but how the butcher who's in harmony with the Tao, he inserts the knife with zero effort and the bones and everything just fall apart effortlessly. Mm. Amazing. Yeah, and, and the same with Ari. You know, a lot of animals and people don't heal. There are some miraculous healings. There are some nothing happens, and there are those that get worse. Some get much worse. And so <laughs> he doesn't attach himself to the outcome, mm-hmm. which is something we have to learn as healers. It's not an ego thing. It's not about you, like you said. It's don't attach yourself to the outcome. Let it go. 
you can do and be done with it. In a way, it was easy for him because he was forced to learn that as a child because he obviously was one of those people who was inundated by the experience of other people's experience and feelings and stuff. And there are people like that. There are people who who can sense things that can read these subtle things of other people but aren't really affected by it. But then there are people who are inundated, overwhelmed by it, and they have to shut that off. And apparently he's one of those. And and just for survival, he had to shut off that empathy switch. Yes. And it's a hard thing to do. You look at something and you go, oh, poor you. You know, I think again about Sai Baba. You know, my Bowen teacher, I was just talking to her about this, and she said she went to see Sai Baba, and he was walking through a crowd, healing people, and there was a woman with a young boy that came every day, every day, and he passed them by every day, passed them by, and one of her friends asked Sai Baba, why do you pass these people by, you know? And he said, let me show you why, and he showed her their karma. They had been killing people in past lives. Mm-hmm. So we don't know from our perspective what's going on. Speaking of mice, there's a story about Jumping Mouse in Seven Arrows. Have you ever seen that book by Storm? Yes, when I was right after high school, I had a, a best friend who had actually studied with Hamio Storm. So oh. we had the book and we were, we were spending a fair amount of time with it. What Completely. a beautiful piece yes. of art that book is. Yes. And do you remember the story of Jumping Mouse? I don't specifically. Please, please tell. Jumping Mouse met a frog, and frog gave him frog medicine, which was to jump. So it's a spiritual leap, okay? So that's the symbol of the frog medicine is a spiritual leap. So Jumping Mouse jumped, and when he jumped, he saw the sacred mountain. Well, that was it. I mean, you know, mice can only see a few inches in front of their face. So this was like, wow, you know, there's a whole other world out there. And he had to go. He had to go find the sacred mountain. And this symbolizes how when you, when you become aware of the spiritual realm, you, can, you can't be satisfied with the mundane world anymore, right? You've got to go. You've got to learn more, right? So Jumping Mouse goes out on this adventure, even though the threat of eagle taking him is always there. And the other friend said, don't do it. Don't, don't, don't go. You're going to get eagles going to eat you. And he's like, I've got to go. I've got to go. So he meets many different creatures on his adventure, and he comes across a bison who was dying, and the bison, the only thing that would save the bison is one of Jumping Mouse's eyes. So he gave him an eye, and then he went along again and, and came across another creature who also was dying, but could only be saved by one of Mouse's eyes, so he gave him the other eye. And so now he's blind. But this symbolizes giving up your limited way of seeing things, your limited perception, your perspective. And so now he's blind, and he goes off, and boom, eagle gets him. Smack. Then he wakes up, and he can see everything. He's with the eagle now. He's in the eagle. He can see everything. So it's that story of spiritual growth. But I always think about, I just have a mouse perspective. I have a mouse perspective. I can only see so far. So for me to go around judging things, I don't know what's really going on. Maybe these things that I think are horrible or these things I'm feeling sorry about are there for a very good reason. You know, even Alexander had that near-death experience. He's a neurosurgeon who mm-hmm. uh, was brain dead from mm-hmm. an E. coli infection. And um, Yeah, I, I did a show on that as well. <laughs> right. Oh, you, you have some interesting shows. But yes. he said, you know, to describe the experience, 
that he had would be like if an ant were a person for a day and then went back to tell the other ants about it. Mm-hmm. Just they don't have the vocabulary. No one's going to understand. You know, and the Buddha faced the same dilemma after his enlightened experience. How do you explain this to people? So it just makes me. I'm an ant. I'm a. I'm a mouse compared to what really is happening. And so it's humbling and helps me be less judgmental and, and just go, well, you know, pray for things, but don't get all hooked up in it because I maybe don't know what's right. Mm-hmm. Right. We have a, a limited perspective, and part of our evolving, growing process is broadening our perspective with more experience. And there's this wonderful old story. Are you familiar with the story of Flatland? No. Essentially, it's about a two-dimensional world, hence the title Flatland, and they have this experience of a three-dimensional form moving through it. Ah. And it's actually a really wonderful teaching tool for people who are more intellectually inclined because Mm -hmm. it helps them to get that lesson of perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, letting go of I'm right and... And I know it all. What I see, you know, right. this is it. Certainty. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's quite quite humbling and makes you want to go learn more. Exactly. And in string theory, they're talking about 10 or 11 dimensions of reality. And we live essentially in three and four dimensions of reality. And we hear stories like you were just telling of people who who see other world. They see dead people. They they see energy. They see things that we generally don't see. So, I mean, if we're humble enough to, and open-minded enough to even just allow the possibility of these things existing. Yeah. In end of June and, and early July, I went to Iceland for a couple of weeks with my husband to do an educational course with Ari. And, you know, when, we, when I was in Banff, he said, who wants to go to Iceland and ride horses, go to elf school, and learn acupuncture? Well, <laughs> hello, of course. We signed up. Let's do it, right? So in Iceland, 54% of the population believe in elves. And Ari had these friends, Brindis and Ronvig, these women who grew up in Iceland who are mediums, and they took us these amazing places and it was the time of solstice so the sun never set and they always took us at night not always but most of the time to these amazing rock formations and there was never anyone there but us so it was just magical in the in this dim light of these amazing lava formations that just they're like magnetic there's waterfalls everywhere also the landscape is incredible and I, I'm not that clairvoyant. I didn't see anything. But apparently these rock formations, they say elves live in rocks, but they're actually the doorway to another dimension. And so we saw one huge rock formation that supposedly had the Council of Elves in it. And there's another place, the most amazing place, called the Asbergi Cliffs. It's way up in the northeast coast. That's where we live. We live in the town of Lager, a little town of about 100 people. That's where these mediums were, and um, right way up on the coast is this enormous set of cliffs, and they're all lava. And I didn't see anything, but I felt, every place, every place we went, I felt just euphoric. The energy was something, and you can drink the water out of streams in Iceland. You can drink the water out of a tap. 
and they encourage us, drink this elf water, drink this elf water. So I drank this elf water, and there's a, a photo of me standing by this rock, and I look so high. You know? <laughs> I, I, and it was just, all I drank was the water, I promise. But one of my teachers who accompanied us on the trip, she's been studying with Ari for many years, and she had a profound experience where she became more aware of these other dimensions, and she went blind, she couldn't see, she didn't know where she was, demons were attacking her. I actually saw her, we were getting gas in Lager, and she was walking along the highway, and I thought, what are you doing out here? She seemed really kind of in a daze, and I, I asked her about it the next day, she said, I don't remember that at all. It took her about 24 hours. She was quite terrified, and then she came back to class, and Ari says, some people need to share their experience. And she came clean and told the whole thing, and it's like, you know, oh, it sounds all lovely, goes view spirit realm, but, you know, and a lot of us were disappointed. We didn't see elves, but I'm like, yeah, maybe end up like this woman for a day, being all confused and scared and blind, <laughs> you know? It, it can be quite terrifying. So that was interesting. And we rode horses. That was beautiful. Mm-hmm. But that is uh, my experience with the elves. Mm. I didn't see them. But they're about the size of 12-year-old children, apparently. And at Asperger, they talked about how these were very wealthy, well-to-do elves. And they've been there a very long time. And they're locked. Supposedly, they're like soulmates. But they're locked in this dimension and because of the way that we deal with the environment. We need to help them. That was... Brindis's big plea, you know, please, we need to help the environment to help these elves. And in Iceland, they alter the roads and bridges and things so not to disturb elf habitat. Mm-hmm. They actually respect it. Yep. So it's a lovely, magical place. So, you know, even though I felt amazing energy and found these places to be, you know, the cliff itself, at the Asperge Cliff, up in this national park on the northeast coast, when I took a photo of it close up, it actually looked like bricks, like big, large, like, like it was a built structure that had been struck by extreme heat and made into lava. Or It just looked man-made in a way, and it's covered with this incredible orange and different colors of moss. And so I asked Ari, I go, this feels so old to me. This feels older than anything I've ever experienced. And I have stood in front of the Colorado Plateau, which is 200 million year old, layers of dirt and it's this feels so much older than anything i've ever experienced could this be atlantis and he said oh yeah it's part of atlantis iceland's part of atlantis okay (laughs) i asked brenda she goes i don't care about atlantis so i don't know so (laughs) it's an amazing amazing world we live in and there's a lot more to it than than any of us are aware of yeah it's very humbling and and entertaining. And, energy. and I love all the stuff, yeah. We'll have fun. Yeah, and I have a couple of friends out here who are acupuncturists, so I'm really curious about some of these points that you're talking about. I don't know if you can, over the phone, share what any of these points are. Well, as you were talking about you're treating fingers and toes uh-huh. on people, those are super powerful points. They're the Jingwell points. Those are the points where the chi begins or ends on the meridian. And they're very, very powerful points. So on the horse, they're around the coronary band on the top of the hoof uh, and between the heel bulbs. And on people, they're just above the fingernails on either side. And in animals, same thing, on either side of the claw, above the claw. 
And those are the points that RE used to teach to treat the deficiencies. So you determine by doing the pulses where it's the energetic pulse, where I feel my pulse, I look into the animal's heart, I see, this is the clairvoyant part, I visualize where the blood is pumping through the heart, and as I feel my pulses without thinking, then I can feel how their energy affects mine, and I can find out which pulses are weak in that animal. And then I determined, through another technique, which of the pulses is the primary weakest pulse. And that pulse is the one, that meridian, it's the lung channel as it was on this Labrador yesterday, I put that needle in the thumb, on the inside of the thumb, below the nail, and you put it in with will. You use your will now, the Rudolf Steiner, separating thinking, willing, and feeling. You don't think, you don't feel, now you will. I'm fixing this point, right? So, lung. And I mean, I put that needle in and boom, the pulse is all balanced, all at once, which is it was amazing to me, so fun. And so that's how you determine the deficiency. Now, the Christ point, you can figure out by a very complicated technique of determining which pulse is excessive, which is deficient, which is the middle point on the five-element theory, and you can put a needle on the Jingwell point that responds to that Christ point. Or, now that Ari's doing it just on the spine, so... In Taoism, the spiritual acupoints are on the vertical axis. The spirit comes into the body on the vertical axis. And so the channel down the front of the body and the channel down the back of the body are spiritual points, as are these Jingwell points. So now he's just, he's all into efficiency, right? He's getting older. It's like, yeah, I don't want to go down and stick a needle in the horse's hind foot anymore. It's scary. It's dangerous. Yeah. And so he can see this. And he started doing it first down the front, and then on people that became problematic with some women, and he said, okay, let's just do the back. A student recommended, why don't you do the back? So he started, and they're mostly all in the thoracic region, up, you know, in the heart, lung, liver vicinity, and he can see it. I went up to my former teacher, who's been studying him for a long time, and I said, I can't see it, tell me what to do. And she uses what's called a noget technique where you feel the pulse in front of your ear and you touch the points on the governing vessel or the spinal column and when the pulse stops that's the Christ point. Now on that cat with the aortic thrombosis is the most obvious Christ point I've felt. I went down you know there's a pulse, there's a pulse, there's a pulse, there's no pulse. There's a pulse, there's a pulse, there's a pulse. So it was like and I kept going back that's there's no pulse on this point. Boom put the needle in there. So, yeah, you know, you got to get this feeling part without thinking down. Mm. Take some practice. But you were doing it with the fingers. You well, can see, you know. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it reminded me of another practice that I learned around the same time from another spiritual tradition that I was working with. Part of our morning routine was doing what was called fingernail and toenail chuaka, which was from an ancient Mongolian tradition that the Mongolian warriors used to do on themselves every day to rid their body and their being of fear, of the fear that, that they experienced in battle. So they were literally cleansing themselves of all past experience, all past karma, so that they could go to, into battle 
completely fearless. So this fingernail toenail chuka is fairly painful to do because the fingernail area of the fingers in particular are, are uh, very sensitive. But uh, af- after you do it for a while, it's no longer that hard. But you have to clip your fingernails close and you use a lot of pressure. You, you're really doing deep massage work on the tips of the fingers and the entire surface of the fingernails and the toenails. And this was a daily practice. And listening to you talking about the stuff reminded me of that. And I think I'll start doing that again. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a simple... Yeah, even taking a needle, you know, when Ari would put a needle in our fingers, that was not... And then kidney one point is in the sole of your foot. Mm. You know, nobody wants that one either, you know. But the dogs, fortunately, don't seem to care. They're pretty good about it. And cats, too. Just give them a cookie, and while they're eating, you stick it in, and they're good. And the horses, the ting points are pretty, jingwell points are pretty accessible. We humans are pretty skittish about pain. Yeah, some more than others. There are people that's not going to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the back point is a lot easier. And he doesn't even stick the needle in far. You know, it's more about your intention. And all the advanced acupuncturists say that. You know, it doesn't matter where you put the needle, where the points are, it's your intention that's the important thing. Right. And when you get really clear about your intention, you don't even need to use a needle even. You don't right. even need to touch a person. Right. But that comes with more work. I'm not there. Right. Most of us are not there. <laughs> <laughs> but with my experience of communicating with animals, you know, non-verbally, I'm getting confirmation that these principles work. We are not separate. We are connected. And communication and all this stuff happens in ways that may seem very counterintuitive or even very mysterious to us. It all becomes quite amazing. My clairvoyant friend that I talk about in the book, he always said, amazing, isn't it? And I thought, what are you talking about? It's amazing, isn't it? She's like so happy and joyful and, and fascinating and amazing. And, you know, the more I start to see how things play out it's like wow that's amazing (laughs) yeah and everything's amazing when you look at things in that way Uh uh-huh and and, you know i think we can apply that to our politics and stuff somehow we could be in less pain about it the energy that we put out doesn't disappear in a vacuum it has profound effects right and that way again you know by praying for these people and sending, you know, helpful thoughts rather than, you know, like I Ching said, if you're going to label it as evil and fight against it, it's just going to get bigger. Mm-hmm. If you let it go and don't label it, it's going to destroy itself. Right. And learning to open your heart enough to, to send love to these people that normally you would not want to have anything to do with. Mm-hmm. And that you may even be... Mm-hmm. Thinking, Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Exactly, yeah. right. And for evil people, send them love. Because I, I heard a very interesting thing from somebody who was very psychically connected, and they were saying that these people who are evil, they don't really want to be that way in, at the deepest level. There. At the deepest level of who they are, they've just gotten to a point where that's all they know and that's all that they trust. And I believe that. I mean, I just think... There was a story about a, a Jewish guy in Auschwitz, 
and, you know, he had witnessed all these people being tortured and killed, and he came back and he was praying, and his friend said, how can you pray? And he said, I'm just so grateful I'm not like those people. Right. I'm not like those people that killed, you know, can you imagine how horrible it is to be filled with that kind of hate mm-hmm. and, and evil? It, it can't feel good. And when you love that much, it overflows, and what better place to send it than to those people? And say gratitude that I'm not like that. Thank right. You. We've been given this wonderful gift of not having that mm-hmm. experience, whether we want to characterize it as being awful or not. It probably doesn't help by judging it and characterizing it that way. Right. And, you know, I like Carolyn May. She says, how do you know? Maybe God sent that person to make your life miserable. You know? <laughs> like, like, maybe there's a purpose for that. Yeah, right. Like, even people like Adolf Hitler. I mean, I'm Jewish, and there were six million Jews murdered three million gypsies murdered by the Nazis. But there are people who say that that actually cleansed the world of an even greater amount of evil and violence, and that if it didn't happen that way, it would have been far worse. So we don't know. We don't really know. Right. Well, once again, this has been a wonderful conversation. I had that sense that no matter what we would talk about, it would be fun and it would be wonderful. (laughs) <laughs> I love talking to you. Me it's t- fun to talk about things that we both enjoy. It's really entertaining, for sure. And it's wonderful to connect with and talk with people who are so open-minded and open-hearted about the world around them. Yes. Yes, it is. You know, when you when you come up to someone who gets off on the complaining about news of the day, it's really uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. It feels unpleasant right away. And... You know, as hard as it is, I try to divert and offer ideas that might be comforting. It's so easy to go into the spiral of ain't it awful. It's, it's so easy to go there, but it doesn't really help anything. We just focus on the bad, and we just make it worse. And I do it, too, but, yeah. I like talking to you because you have so many wonderful stories as well and ask great questions. And It's been a real pleasure meeting you and talking with you. Mm, for me, too. I've really thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. And it's such a treat. It's such a wonderful, wonderful treat. And the name of the book uh, about the horse person is? Oh, Linda Kahanov, K-O-H-A-N-O-V. She's written several books. The last one was The Power of the Herd, which I'm going to get my hands on and read that as well. This book is The Five Roles of the Master Herder. Okay. Oh, wow which is about this symbiotic relationship of the nomadic pastoral cultures and their horses and their animals. And they don't use restraints or fencing, and yet they live in a mutually... They like dogs. (laughs) Yeah. They have this amazing way of living together. Uh Uh-huh. Which I think is something that, that humanity really needs to learn about. Yeah. Much to learn. Thank you so much for calling me and and interviewing me and promoting my book. And if you ever come across anything that you're interested in talking about, I would love to do that with you. Okay. Yeah, at some point I really want to get into more of the spiritual healing of animals and um, really go in that direction, hopefully write a book on that, maybe, you know, more Ari instruction and also more Taoism and if we can't step that up to the next dimension. Mm -hmm. That would be wonderful. I love that. Very good. 
Okay. Be well and and enjoy this holiday season. Happy holidays to you, Tonio. And to you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Carlene Stange. She is a country vet living and practicing in around Durango, Colorado. And she's the author of The Spiritual Nature of Animals, a country vet's exploration of the wisdom, compassion, and soul of animals. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.